Okay, would you stand and turn to Proverbs 4? Hear, my children, the instruction of a father, and give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. And I was my father's son, tender, and the only one in the sight of my mother. He also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor when you embrace her. She will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. Hear, my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil, and their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, my son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings, do not let them apart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart, for they are alive to those who find them, and health to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth, and, and put perverse lips far from you. And, no, yeah, sorry. Let your eyes look straight ahead, and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. Good morning. We are once again before God's Word. And before we dive in, there's a whole lot here. Uh, before we jump in, uh, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a, in a word of prayer. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, you are mighty to save. Your power alone can raise the dead to life. We started this study, uh, Lord, by looking at your son. And we conclude this study today by looking at your son. Jesus makes resurrected living possible. It's because he lives that we too can live. And today, Lord, I pray for the parents of all of our young people here in this place. And I pray that they would take seriously the call to train up their children in the way that they should go. Lord, I pray that you would grant them wisdom and direction to lead their respective households for your glory and honor. Lord, I also pray today for each of the sons and daughters that are gathered in this place. The children still living in the home. Children still under the roof and authority of dad and mom. I pray, Lord, that you would give them understanding from your word, that you would equip them with your wisdom, that you would see that they show great discernment and discretion. I pray, Lord, that you would let instruction be their friend and that prudence would be a familiar path that they tread. See that they treasure knowledge from your word, Lord. And above all, I pray that you would show them their need for you. May each son and daughter here in this place exhibit a genuine fear of you, Lord. That is the beginning step in raising up godly sons and daughters. So, Lord, I pray that our children would fear you, that they would know you and learn to listen to you. Help us as parents to channel our sons and daughters always into your loving presence at all times. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Proverbs chapter 1, if you'd flip backward a page in your, in your Bible. 
Follow me as I read these words. Proverbs 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. The writer here of the bulk of of these Proverbs. Solomon. Okay? These verses right here up front give us the, the big idea of Proverbs. You want to know what it's about? These first seven verses sort of give us the, the big why and what, what this is about. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of wisdom. Justice, judgment, and equity. To give prudence to the simple. To the young man, and also I would add, young woman... Knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma. Something puzzling. Something maybe hard to grasp. The words of the wise and their riddles. Listen to verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom And instruction. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We see Proverbs 9 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not only is it the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Chapter 9 verse 10. And we see in 1426 of Proverbs. That in the fear of the Lord there is strong Confidence and his children, the Lord's children, will have a place of refuge. There's a present aspect there with present and future results attached to it. In Proverbs 14 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. It's a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. And then 1923 says, The fear of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. He will not be visited with evil. There we see more of a future aspect. And then we read a verse like 29, 25 in the Proverbs. which says, the fear of man brings a snare. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man brings a snare. I'd ask you a question this morning. Young people, sons and daughters. I'm speaking primarily to you this morning. So if you're a son or a daughter... I'm speaking these words to you this morning, primarily to you. Dads and moms, I think you'll learn a lot through this as well. But this is really intended in many ways to the younger people gathered among us. Will you choose to fear man in this life? Or will you choose to fear the Lord? That's a primary question that you're going to have to settle. Are you going to choose to fear man? Or are you going to choose to fear the Lord God? The Bible says that the fear of man brings a snare, that the fear of man is a trap. Why is that? I believe in part it's because we are created in the image of God, and created in the image of God, we are made, listen, we're made to trust God, to trust in Him. When someone else or something else takes the rightful place of God, we are setting ourselves up to be ensnared. Man has something going for him. This is not something like good and positive that God doesn't have. God is a holy God. He does not sin. Consider what you're doing when you fear man. The idea of fearing man, uh, giving awe and reverence to this other person. Okay? When you fear man, when you make decisions, you take actions in life purely to please that other person. Have, have you any, any of you young people here ever made a decision in your life where you pleased another person? That that was your primary objective. Pleasing another person. Pleasing them to the point that if you didn't take this action, you were fearful of what they might think about you. Fearful of what they might say to you. Anybody here ever been in a situation like that? Yeah. The fear of man brings a snare, but, notice the proverb, but, as a contrast, whoever trusts in the Lord shall be saved. It seems like what's before us are two contrasting ideas. Fear of man versus trusting in the Lord. 
They're, they're pitted against one another. In other words, fearing man and trusting in the Lord are on separate tracks. You can't be fearing man and also at the same time trusting in the Lord. The Bible talks about we cannot serve two masters. Do you remember that? You can't have rival loves. The Bible says you can serve one. Who's it going to be? Well, today, as, as you're probably aware, is the conclusion of the series we've been in called Resurrected. And we began with Jesus, we began with his resurrection, and we've been coming back to this main premise from that first message, which is this. Jesus makes possible resurrected living. Jesus is the one who makes that possible. And each week we've been looking at how resurrected living gets exercised in the workplaces, in the church, in marriage, in motherhood, in fatherhood. And today I want to zero in on sons and daughters in the home. This is the show of hands. How many sons living in the home do we have here today? Raise your hand. If you're a son, you're still living in the home. Raise your hand. Nice and high. Okay, good. Bunch of you. How about daughters? Great. It may be about even. Just in terms of the show of hands, it's close. Very good. I want you to listen to something this morning, sons and daughters. The book of Proverbs isn't only for young people, but it is highly targeted at young people. Okay? Countless times we read, my son, my son, my children, my son. Solomon is writing these words to pass along to his own children. And parents... This may very well be the best parenting manual around. The Lord has given to us and blessed us and revealed to us 66 books. Out of the 66 books in the scriptures, this one, Proverbs, is probably, I would put it there, it's probably the best parenting manual in all of scripture. If you haven't been consulting the book of Proverbs... You're missing out on some of God's best material as it pertains to raising up your children for his glory and honor. Okay? Those of you who have been accustomed to reading the Proverbs, you will probably attest to that very truth. It's very helpful. Very instructive. In their 2009 book, Already Gone, Ken Ham and Britt Beamer introduced their subject of children leaving the church by laying out their objectives. They do it right up front. And they set out to discover who was leaving the church. They want to know, who are these young people leaving the church? Is it any particular age group? Is it any particular gender? Is it any particular denomination group? Who are these people? They also wanted to know what was going on in the minds of these young people. They pulled a thousand young people ages 20 to 29, who had grown up, all of these people polled, they they had grown up attending church, the gathering of the church, regularly. And they wanted to know what do these young people believe? Because what they come to find out is that belief and, and behavior are not detached. They're connected, very much so. Well, they were also interested to see why these 20 to 29-year-olds were leaving the church. Anything in particular that was driving them away. And as they carried out the research, it became clearer that the more pertinent question was not who, nor what, nor why. The surprising stats rallied around when. When they left the church. In fact, one of the polls said those who no longer believe that all of the accounts and stories in the Bible are true... About 40% had their first doubts in middle school. About 44% had their first doubts in high school. And about 11% had their first doubts during college. And they write, clearly there is a slightly delayed reaction going on. The doubts come first, followed shortly by departure. Students didn't begin doubting in college. They simply departed by college. Pretty interesting. It goes on and it says, of these... 1,020 to 29-year-olds who attended church regularly but no longer do so. Listen to this. 95% of them attended church regularly during their elementary and middle school years. 55% of them attended church regularly during their high school years. 
95? 55. How many is that? I'm not very good at math, but I think that's about 40% drop-off right there. Only 11% were still going to church during their early college years. And he goes on and he writes, he says, most people assume that students are lost in college. But it turns out that only 11% of those who have left the church were still attending during the college years. Almost, listen, almost 90% were lost in middle school and high school. By the time they got to college, they were already gone. The win is a pretty important deal. You know, and I was reminded as I was reading that, I was reminded of one of the numbers we shared last week. Out of every 10 men in the church, nine will have children who leave the church. That's about pretty comparable to what we're talking about here, 90%. Listen, young men and young ladies, there's no need for you to be one of those statistics. There are various reasons why these young people are leaving the church. College isn't the primary problem for the departure. I'm not saying college is perfect by any means, but it's not the primary problem. The secularization of higher education is not the primary problem today. Many of them have already gone from the church long before college. We have many young people here today. The bulk of people sitting in the chairs are young people today. And the stats, according to what I see in reading the statistics, as I look around the room, the statistics tell me, and I'm hoping these statistics are wrong in this place. But the statistics tell me that two-thirds, two-thirds of you are already checked out. You're already gone. That's a pretty high statistic. Two-thirds of you, when I say you're already gone, some of you are saying, how can I be gone? I'm here. Let me, let me be more clear. When I say that you're gone, you're gone either here or you're gone here. Heart, mind. You're showing up, you're here. You're filling a chair. But you're just filling time, some of you. Some of you are here today, and praise God you're here today, but you're here today in large part because your dad or your mom got you up out of bed. Some of you are here today, you came in, you really didn't want to come. Some of you perhaps could think of other ways to use your time this morning. Some of you are counting the minutes until I'm done preaching this morning. Some of you are zoomed in on the lunch hour, you're eagerly anticipating playing with your friends. You're talking to them about your week and the next fun event on your calendar. Those are things you're thinking about. I'm not saying all those things are bad things either. It's really not a far cry to think that two-thirds of the young people are already gone in heart and mind. Nor is it a far cry to consider a large percentage of parents already gone. This applies to parents too. Just coming, showing up week after week after week. Sitting in a chair. It can happen to parents too. You're here, but you're really not here. You're here, eyes closed, get the glaze, you're, you're gone. You're not really engaged, you're not really participating, you're not really into why we've come, and that's to worship the Lord. You're not bringing your best to the God who gave you his best. And the thing is, you know that something's not quite right. You might not be able to pinpoint what that is, but the heart and the mind, they're somewhere else. Sons and daughters, I believe something to be true of this group here at Hope in Christ, and maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I believe that this group here has the desire to walk with God. I believe that. I believe that there's a want to for many of you here. I sense that a good number of you like the idea of what it is to follow hard after Jesus. 
Are you doing your best to present yourself to God as one approved, one who has stood the test, rightly dividing, handling the word of God? It's a question that comes from Paul's letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15. What does it look like, young people, to present yourself to God as one approved? Do you know how to navigate yourself around the scriptures? Do you find yourself perhaps in perpetual Ethiopian eunuch mode? You know what that is? You remember the account, don't you, in Acts chapter 8? When Philip is called to go run alongside that chariot... And as he goes and runs alongside the chariot, he, he comes to find out that this Ethiopian is reading the scriptures from Isaiah the prophet. And he asks him a question. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone explains it to me? Philip gets up in the chariot, explains. You See, as you start your journey in the scriptures, young people, you're going to need a Philip or two to climb up into your chariot to help you understand a thing or two about what you're reading. That's pretty natural. But over time, young people, as you grow physically, there also ought to be some growth spiritually, some sanctification happening at work. You know the sign that says uh, sanctification at work. Um, There's growth here. I'm moving somewhere. I'm going somewhere with my Lord Jesus. I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling as God works in me. That's the goal. A heart transformed by the Spirit of God and a mind renewed through constant feeding on the Word of God. A relationship with God that travels steadfastly in what the Bible calls right paths. If you think about your life, young people, some of you are five, six, seven, eight years old. Some of you are 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Some of you have lived longer than others. Guess what? There ought to be some evident fruit that you have been around a little bit longer than someone else. If you are in the Lord, if you know Jesus Christ, there ought to be something that tells folks around you, especially family members who see you every day. My life is different. My life is growing. It's changing. It's transforming because of Christ in me and his word in me. Jack Graham in his book, Fit for Life, he says the Christian life is not a self-improvement or do-it-yourself project, but a matter of allowing Christ, I love this, a matter of allowing Christ to take control of your life. You think about that for just a moment. Sounds great, doesn't it? Allowing Christ to just take control of your life. Some of you might be saying, what are my next steps to see that he takes the wheels of my life? I want him to drive. I've been driving this life of mine for far too long. I'm realizing two things along the way. One, I don't drive very well on my own. Two, he's God and his spirit in me can lead me on a much better, more godly, more fulfilling, more joy-filled path than I can ever imagine. So in the time that we have left, sons and daughters... I want to share with you from the book of Proverbs how this kind of life is possible. From the word, I want to share with you some next steps, if you will, for allowing Christ to take control of your life. I'm praying that none of you here decide to jump ship from God and his church. Thinking somehow, some way, that life is better on the other side. The grass is greener. Let me tell you, it's not. It's not greener at all. It might look greener. That's a deception. Don't be deceived. Next steps. Here's the first one I would give you, young people. It's fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. This has got to be step one. As we think about next steps. What do, how, how do we want, how does it happen that Christ takes control of my life? In my everyday living, 
I think what has to be in place and what the proverb writer would emphasize must be in place. This is not an option. This must be in place. And that is a fear of the Lord God in your life. Chapter 1, verse 7, we read it. Chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 9, verse 10, for starters. I was looking at at the Webster's 1828. This was interesting. Fear of God is a holy awe or reverence of God and His laws, listen, which springs from a just view and real love of the divine character. Leading the subjects of it, that's you and me, leading the subjects of it to hate and shun everything that can offend such a holy God and inclining them to aim at perfect obedience. I love that definition. That's a great definition. We don't oftentimes think that way. I'm convinced of it. Holy awe, reverencing of God and His laws, which springs from a just view, God is a just God, and a real love that we have of Him. And it leads us then to hate and shun everything that can offend such a holy God. I was drawn to the Psalms in Psalm 119. I love Psalm 119 because it's about a, about a man of God who loves God and loves God's word. In Psalm 119, 104, he says, Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. In verse 168 of the same psalm, he says, I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. So there's this recognition from the psalmist that understanding only comes through God's precepts, his word. Therefore, he hates every false way. In other words, the value of God's word in him produces something he doesn't get anywhere else. There's a clarity of direction, which is quite refreshing. He hates every false way because it doesn't render the results of a godly man. There's a practical element observed. You see, walking in God's precepts is the path of truth. He's learned, the psalmist has, to discern God's truth from the world's falsehood. The fear of God shows up in a reverence for His Word. I'll say that again. The fear of God shows up in a reverence for His Word. Not neglecting it, not forsaking it, not treating it as common, ordinary. In verse 168 of that Psalm 119, the psalmist provides another motivation connected to the one who has a fear of God. Notice that he keeps God's precepts. But notice in this verse in 168, the motivation for doing so. For all my ways are before him. That's why he does what he does. He does what he does because he recognizes that his life is being streamed, if you will. His life is being streamed. You know what it is? Streaming. You ever ever done one of those streaming events live? You can click on something and you see it actually going on. It's it's happening right before you. It's streaming. But did you know the psalmist is saying that it's like his life. he, He recognizes his life is being streamed before the eyes of God. He's watching. The fear of God then shows up in a reverence and awe of a holy God, desiring to honor Him, to obey Him, to please Him in all of your ways. You want Christ to take control of your life? Acquiring a fear of the Lord is foundational, sons and daughters. It's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. It's a fountain of life. It leads to life. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, Proverbs 8.13 says. You can't have one and do the other. The the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Now that's interesting. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And then here in Proverbs 3, 7, Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Listen. This life that you're living, sons and daughters, is not going to happen with this, this life being controlled by Christ. It doesn't happen automatically. Doesn't happen automatically. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. 
Guess what? You, you, you fear him. This, this holy awe, this reverence that we talked about is coupled here with departing from evil. I have to, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. There's some things that you're going to have to do. Some things that maybe you're not accustomed to doing right now. Things that you're being called to do. Going to be uncomfortable, perhaps. You're not going to have some friends, perhaps, because of it. But you need to depart from evil. You need to remove your feet from a certain place. You need to stop talking out of both sides of your mouth, perhaps. You need to depart from evil. Fear of the Lord shows up in a life that's surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear of the Lord is evident in the life of one who's believed in Jesus and received him as Savior. That's why this is the first action step up front to allowing Christ to take control of your life. As the hymn writer says, I'll put it in a question. Have you surrendered all to thee? All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Have you surrendered all to him? A fear of God shows up in how you handle his word and how you view him. When you read his word, are you quick to hear it and obey it? When you make decisions in your day, young people, do you consider how this might bring God pleasure? Fear the Lord. Here's here's another action step, a next step for you. Allowing God to take control of your life. Get wisdom. Get wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4. Get wisdom. By the way, these were instructions that Solomon's passing along from his father, These are words he says, my father taught me. In other words, these are words that he remembered his dad teaching him. Dads, this ought to be instructive for us, side note. The words that you share, the things that you teach and instruct your children, they'll carry those things along. We see see evidence of this right here. He's telling his son, hey, here's what my dad taught me. Let your heart also retain my words. Keep my commands and live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Get wisdom. (laughs) Get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. It's pretty clear, isn't it? Get it. Go after it. In the first chapter of Proverbs, we see the purpose of this book. And it has a whole lot to do, friends, with wisdom, doesn't it? If you flip backwards, the first line, the first line is to know what? To know wisdom. To know wisdom and instruction. The third line is to receive the instruction of wisdom. What is wisdom? Well, again, give another basic, simple definition. Uh, in, in Webster's 1828, wisdom being the right use or exercise of knowledge. It's the choice of laudable ends and of the best means to accomplish them. Some have referred to this as practical wisdom and referred to the book of Proverbs as very practical. The Old Testament might be seen as having Proverbs as the practical book of wisdom. Maybe in the New Testament that would be James. James oftentimes is referred to as a very practical New Testament teaching. We see here in the Old Testament, this Proverbs book is loaded with practical teaching. But listen, it's practical only insofar as you apply what's here. It's not very practical if you don't use it. Raymond Harris, in his book, The Heart of Business, he writes about these words of wisdom. He says, wisdom is granted with time. Wisdom is developed through life's experiences and through the study and application of God's word. That's not real difficult there. The study and application of God's word. It takes some work. It's not going to be easy. In fact, the first nine chapters of Proverbs serve as the precursor to getting wisdom. Folly and wisdom, right, are contrasted and personified. In chapter 2, you're taught to incline your ear to wisdom. And to seek her as for hidden treasures. In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, you see that the Lord himself is the one who gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's storing it up for the upright. And Harris 
ask the question, a question that I believe many of you sons and daughters have asked and are maybe still today asking, how do I know the right thing? Isn't that a big question? How do I know the right thing? He says it takes God-given wisdom to know and to do the right thing. And his word is the primary source for wisdom. Without the wisdom found in God's word, we make judgments, listen, based only on our perceptions, often faulty assumptions that lead to logical but wrong conclusions. We think about this each day is filled with a myriad of decisions. You woke up this morning and you've already made a load of decisions today, haven't you? Started when the alarm went off or when somebody drug you out of bed. And you got out of bed. And I know for me, when I get out of bed, I'm usually doing a little stretching, trying to shake the cobwebs out. And I usually make my way into the far bathroom. And I usually make my way, one of the first things I do is I, I usually take care of shaving. I've got a routine. Some of you may be in the same boat. You, you've got a routine. When you get out of bed, you are accustomed to doing certain things. But I would ask you as you consider your routine, are you allowing Christ to take control of your life in the, in the daily decisions, in the moment-by-moment -moment decisions that you carry out? Are you considering and thinking about what God would have you do? Proverbs 15, 20 it says, a wise son makes a father glad. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. You know, we're called in the commandments to honor our father and mother. Did you know, young people, that how you live your life, you can honor your father and mother by, mother by how you live, or you can dishonor them by how you live. You can be wise or you can be a fool. That's what the Bible tells us. Matthew chapter 7 gives us another picture, a great picture, of a wise man who builds his house on a rock and gives us a picture of a foolish man who builds his house on what? Sand, right? And we don't know the outcome of that until what happens? Storms, rain hits the house. And in the one house it collapses and falls, and in the other house it stands. Why? Well, because one was building wisely and the other was building foolishly. Right thinking leads to right doing. One writer talks about, he says, the more our heart is saturated with God's word, the more his principles become part of our automatic conscious processing, changing the way we look at problems. Solutions quickly suggest themselves when the principles of God's word filter out the confusion of our limited human perspective and we make better decisions. I love what one writer says. He says we need to, and he's encouraging all of us in this, but I'm going to encourage specifically young people. We need to enroll in the school of God's wisdom. We need to enroll in the school of God's wisdom. We need to be taught by God himself through his word. Proverbs 10, 14 says, wise people store up knowledge. What kind of knowledge? His knowledge, his word, his truth. They store it up. They store up knowledge. And listen, Proverbs 2, verse 7 says, God stores up wisdom for the upright. Store it up. Get wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. So fear the Lord and get wisdom. Here's the third one. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23. Keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it spring the issues of life. Or another translation rendering is... Uh, Guard your heart, for it is the control center of your life. Now, it's important also to note that in, oftentimes in Hebrew thought, the heart and the mind go together. Guarding. I, I was drawn also to, to Mark's gospel and, and Jesus, in his words in Mark chapter 7, in verses 20 to 23, Jesus is, is talking about, they're, they're talking about these uh, uh, whether one is clean by what goes into their body versus what comes. Jesus is addressing this, and he goes, wait a minute, you guys got it all wrong. He says, what comes out of a man, that's, that's what defiles a man. For from within, Jesus says, out of the heart of men, listen, Jesus says this, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, 
covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride. Listen to this last one. Foolishness. Does that apply to the book of Proverbs that we're reading? Absolutely. Jesus says what comes out of the heart, on that list, on that big list, is foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man, Jesus says. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. But what is in the heart of fools is made known. Would you agree with that? Have you ever seen a situation where someone who is, and you may not know it at the time that they're a fool, but their actions show you that they're a fool? You ever been around someone where that's been true? You're in a, in a crowd, you show up somewhere, you're maybe at a restaurant, and you hear someone yelling or screaming at someone else in a very rude manner. What's in the heart of a person eventually comes out and is made known. And, and it shows itself as to whether you are a fool or whether you are wise. Out of the heart spring these issues of life. Proverbs fifteen fourteen says, The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. But the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Here it speaks to the mouth. The mouth of a fool feeds on foolishness. I want you to think about and consider these issues that come up in life, young people. The issues that come up in life require a mind that is renewed by the word of God. Oz Guinness in his book, I love the title, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. It's a great book title. He writes these words. He says, God has given us minds, but many of us have left them underdeveloped or undeveloped. (laughs) Underdeveloped or undeveloped. He goes on, he talks about what it is to think Christianly. He says, thinking Christianly is thinking by Christians about anything and everything in a consistently Christian way, in a manner that is shaped, directed, and restrained by the truth of God's word and God's spirit. Thinking Christianly, he says, is premised only on the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. We talked about that already, didn't we? Likewise, it proceeds only when we rely continually on God's word and God's Spirit, guard your heart, guard your mind. Here's a fourth one. Watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. You ever heard dad or mom say that when growing up? Watch your mouth. Maybe it's a different phrase. Watch your mouth, guard your tongue. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 24 Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Listen, part of the the deceitfulness, part of the perversity coming out of your mouth, if this helps you at all, young people, I think it's important just to note that Proverbs 6 gives us a list of seven things that the Lord hates. He hates a lying tongue. Lying lips are an abomination to God. That's one of our phrases around in our house that we use. We make sure that everyone knows about that. God is not pleased with lying lips, deceitful tongues. Brethren who sow discord, we sow discord with our lips and what we say. Put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put perverse lips far from you. Proverbs 13.3 says, He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he who opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Think about that. He who opens wide his lips, it's a great picture, shall have destruction. Really, in some ways, ties into the, the proverb there in 10.19, where there are many words, sin is not absent. The more, it's just like, a, here's a practical truth. The more you talk, the more chance you have of sinning with your tongue. Think about it. The words that we use. The tongue of the righteous in 10 verse 20 
The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. I love that proverb because it draws out the connection between the heart and the tongue. See, the first part says the tongue of the righteous is choice silver. And then it goes to the heart of the wicked is worth little. What do we know to be true from the Bible? That what we speak comes out of the reservoir of what? The heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Proverbs 10, 32, the lips of the righteous know what is acceptable, but the mouth of the wicked, what is perverse. That's what they know. Practice putting away a deceitful mouth, perversity, wickedness of the tongue. Remove it far from you. Resurrected sons and daughters take inventory of their words, what they say, how they say them, and what they choose not to say. You're considered perceptive just by keeping your mouth closed, the proverb writer says. Think about that. Discernment is the close companion to wisdom in the scripture. Yeah, helpful here with our words. Think about the words that we use. Encouraging words, respectful words, kind words, optimistic words, caring words, truthful words, loving words. That's Ephesians 4 coupled together, truth and love, right? That's how we speak to one another. Does this describe the words that typically come out of your mouth, sons and daughters? There are some words that come out of the mouths of sons and daughters that are far from what I just described. There are some words that come out of the mouth that have more to do with bickering, complaining, arguing, Words that can be very selfish. I would want you to know and understand that the Lord and His desire is that you would put away from you a deceitful mouth. Put perverse lips far from you. Ask God. Ask God to help you and give you wisdom in this arena of your speech. Because this is a pretty important part of what we're talking about. When we're asking God, we want Christ to control our life. Listen, that includes what we speak. Gives us instruction here. Here's the next one. Eye on, eyes on the prize. 425 of Proverbs. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Walking with the Lord, young people, is going to require discipline with your eyes. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes. Remember that? Job 31, I believe it is. He covenanted with his eyes. The psalmist in, in Psalm 119 says, to turn your eyes away from worthless things. I don't know that I need to go into details of what those worthless things are. There's a whole lot of worthless things out there that you need to be turning your eyes away from. Sons and daughters. Dads and moms. It happened again the other day. We were out at the restaurant. A mom and her child were at the table. And both of them are looking at their gadgets. Now, some of you may not have an electronic gadget. The gadget itself isn't the problem. Okay? I'm not knocking technology. I'm not. I'm going to make that very clear. What I am saying is this. What we're looking at often times is going to impact what we think about a lot. It's going to also trickle down into what's in our heart. If we, if we really desire Christ to take control of our lives, to drive the wheel of our life, so to speak, we're going to be very intentional about what we set our eyes upon. And conversely, what we don't set our eyes upon. If you think this isn't a problem for you, if you think I'm blowing smoke with this, perhaps try, try, I'll, I'll say this word, try, because I don't know that some of you could do it. To go 30 days, 10 days, I don't know how many days, try it. Five, maybe it's hard to do three, I don't know. Without 
looking at your computer screen or your email. Some of you, I realize, older ones, I'm not talking about dads and moms that may need it for their workplace. I'm talking about young people. What are you looking at? If we're going to walk in wisdom and have a fear of the Lord, these gadgets are not going to own us. It's discipline. Discipline. How often during the course of the day are your eyes on your phone, on your computer, on your tablet, on your game, on whatever? What are you looking at most often during your day? What are you consumed to look at? Is there something coming in through your eye gate that ought not be coming in? When it comes in the eye gate, it tends to, here's what it tends to do. It tends to lodge and make space in your mind. What you see often tends to translate into what you think about. Solomon spends a great deal on this in chapters 5, 6, and 7, doesn't he? Addressing this man who's devoid of understanding. David stays at home. You might remember the story of David. He stays at home when he should have been at war. And what does he do? He sees a beautiful woman. He sees her. Well, seeing her, he then takes action. He covets her and takes her as his own. What he saw, he acted on. It's that little child song. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Remember that song? We learned, oh, careful, little eyes. For the, why? For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. That goes back to the fear of God, doesn't it? Do you have a fear of God? Do you have a conscience that, that when you are looking at something you ought not be looking at, uh, it's like an immediate reaction because that's not something that would be pleasing to the Lord. Looking unto Jesus, fix your eyes upon Jesus, turn your eyes upon Jesus. These are phrases and words that we've heard. When you take your eyes off the Lord and you look to the right or to the left, you have a tendency to get distracted. Anyone here, young people, sons and daughters, anyone here ever get distracted? Okay, all right, good. I kind of thought you might have at least once in your life got distracted. You've gotten distracted. You might go to the net to search something out specifically. Maybe it's for a project you're doing at school. But in the process, you see something else that snares your attention. And before you know it, you are reading an article that had nothing to do with your original purpose for logging online. Discipline your eyes. Don't get distracted. Look straight ahead. Eyes on the prize. I think about the track runner and the 110-meter hurdles. I love the event just from the perspective of, of what they're looking at. I, I did years ago um, run this event, and it was a fun event only when I made it all the way through successfully the hurdles and didn't have the hurdle knock me down. But the idea is that when you start and you're running, you are looking at the tape because all you see is this line of hurdles and you get to where you have a rhythm in between the hurdles. But you're, you're looking the whole time at the finish line as you're running. You know your steps. It's the steps. It's a pattern. It's the steps. Jump. One, two, three. Boom. You're jumping. But you're looking the whole time. Young people, I want to encourage you to look the entire time at where you're headed, what you're doing, where you're going. Eternal perspective on life. Pleasing the Lord. Well, quickly, we're, we're about out of time, but I'm going to give you two more just briefly. We won't elaborate on them, but let me just give you these, these two other action steps. We want, control, we want Christ to control our lives. We want him to drive the wheel of our life. What are some steps? We talked about fearing the Lord, getting wisdom, guarding your heart and mind, watching your mouth, keeping your eyes on the prize. Number six, walking the right path. Walking the right path. Chapter 4 spends a lot of time talking about this one. Starting in verse 11. I've taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in right paths. There's a note for us parents right there. Are we leading our children in right paths? Right paths defined by what his word of truth actually says and teaches. He says, I've led you in right paths. And there's going to be some of you that are going to leave the home having been led in right paths and you're going to choose to go a different path. Remember the statistics I shared earlier? 
Two-thirds? Really? That's high. That's a high percentage of people. People who grew up in a church gathering, people who grew up hearing sermon after sermon after sermon of the truth, of the gospel. And two-thirds of them are walking away from God and the church? Really? Verse 14. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. By the way, does that happen automatically? No. You make a conscience choice whether you're going to walk this direction. It's saying, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. I love the simplicity of it. Have nothing to do with it. Understand what path you're on. Because there's going to be some people in verses 16 and 17... There's some people that are going to do their best to get you off track, to get you off the path. That's why it's important that you are hanging around, young people, right kind of people. If you're hanging around foolish people, perverse people, you're going to be like them. Conversely, if you're hanging around wise people, people who are also desiring to have the Lord Jesus take control of their life, Uh, There's going to be a lot of good counsel there, a lot of good wisdom there. You'll you'll be able to walk together as you're pursuing and looking to the Lord. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Verse 26, 27, ponder the path of your feet and let all your ways be established. Let all of your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left, just like with our eyes. Don't turn to the right or the left. Don't get distracted. Your feet, be disciplined as well, where you're going, what you're doing. Where are you walking? That, 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 man, was, that man was devoid of understanding, not knowing what it was going to lead to. It was going to cost him his very life. Shame and reproach will not be wiped away because he made a foolish decision. Walk the path of righteousness. Here's the last one. Receive instruction. Receive instruction. And we see this at the beginning of chapter 4. Here, my children, the instruction of a father. Give attention to no understanding. I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. We see also, uh, he says, he also taught me, in verse 4. His father taught him. We see in verses 10 and 11. Hear my son, receive my sayings. The years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. In verse 13. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let her go. Keep her, for she is your life. Verse 20. My son, give attention to my words. Hear my instruction. Receive my sayings. Take firm hold of instruction. 6.23 of Proverbs says, Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. If you look at the end of Proverbs 5, this is the summary, if you will, of this man who made a poor decision. It tells us that the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders, all, he ponders all his paths. Not only are you called to ponder your path, but this tells us that God's pondering your path too. Not in the same way because he really knows your path. <laughs> he ponders all of your steps. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of what? Instruction. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he shall go astray. Listen to that man devoid of understanding there in chapter 5. The man who gives in to the harlot in Proverbs 5. Listen to his words, and these words are on the back end. These are some thoughts on the back end of making this poor decision. Listen carefully to what he's saying in verses 12 and 13. Oh, this time, when this time will come, he says, And how I have hated instruction... And my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. 
It reminds me of the beginning chapter of Proverbs and how it says that fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fools despise it. You might say, well, he just made a bad decision. Well, that may be true. But what were the smaller decisions that led up to that decision being made? There are, there's oftentimes a lot of other decisions that are needing to be made prior to the one that gets made. And the one we see here in 5, 6, and 7, he, he, he just hammers this issue. Sons, in particular, take heed to 5, 6, and 7. Don't get ensnared. Receive the instruction. Learn from it. Don't be another statistic. Please, for the Lord's sake. If, if this is an area, young men, I'm, side note, this is not in the notes. But if this is an area, the stuff that he's dealing with in 5, 6, and 7, that is a snare for you right now as I'm speaking, will you please see either your dad or me or another man in this body? Talk, talk to someone about this. So we can help steer you in this right path. Don't allow it to go any further than today. Well, we need to be done. There's a lot more we could share. Listen. If we're not working on this, church, young people... If we're not working on this, it's not going to get a whole lot better. One writer said that the natural slide in life tends to be down, not up. It's true. That's the direction we tend to go if we're not disciplined to walk with the Lord. Fear the Lord. Get wisdom. Guard your heart. Watch your mouth. Keep your eyes on the prize. Look straight ahead. Walk the right path. And receive instruction. Those are some great next steps, sons and daughters. Listen, don't, don't let anyone tell you anything contrary to what you know to be true here in the Word. Follow and stand upon this Word. Understand that your worth... Young people's identities today are a pretty big deal. I understand that, at least in part. And you know what? People are creating identities all over the place, uh, these cyber identities online, because they want to think of themselves and portray themselves as someone that they really are not. There are a lot of people looking for an identity. And I just want to close by saying this, young people. Your worth is not in what you own. Your worth is not... And how you look or your, your attire that you have on, in the car that you drive, in the house that you live in, that's not where your worth is. In fact, the song that we're about to sing speaks to where our worth needs to be. Where we need to focus that worth is a value that's fixed and your ransom is paid at the cross. At the cross. Your worth is not in what you own. Take out your yellow binders. Turn to page 49. We're going to sing together. I think this song in many ways is an encouragement to sons and daughters. I hope and pray it is. That's why I selected it this week at this particular point in the service. Stanza 5 says, Two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. My value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. Young people, you want Christ to control your life? You want Christ to drive the wheels of your car? 
understanding that your worth is not in what you own. Your worth is predicated primarily in who you are in Christ Jesus. Let that be satisfactory and sufficient enough for you in these days ahead. And dads and moms, continue to pray for your sons and daughters. Continue to pray that they would be molded and shaped by God and His Word alone, that they would walk in those paths of righteousness for His name's sake. As we pray, we'll do that and then we're going to sing. My worth is not in what I own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given to us your truth. And Lord, I pray for each young person here. I pray for the sons, that these sons would be strong in the Lord. They'd be young men who overcome the evil one in their life. They'd be young men who know what the word says. Young men who operate from the perspective of knowing you. They'd be young men who treat young ladies with all purity just as they would their sisters. And I pray, Father, for these daughters. Lord, I pray for the daughters. I pray, Lord, that they would be consumed with knowing you, that they would drive their worth and their value from what you've said in your word about them, not in what some guy might think about them or not in what someone else might think about them, that they would understand that their beauty is not exterior primarily, but their beauty is, according to the scripture, this inward beauty. That they would desire to cultivate their heart and their mind for the Lord's sake. I pray for sons and daughters that that both of them would cultivate a godly life. That they would be wise young people and not fools. We see fools all around us today, Lord. I pray that this group of young people gathered here today would walk uprightly, would fear you, would have a heart of wisdom, would desire each day to guard their heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Keep them from the evil one, I pray, Lord. And I pray that they would work out their salvation with fear and trembling as you're working in them. Both to will and to do for your good purposes here on the face of this earth. Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together.